Well, I want to say good morning. First of all, I want to welcome you, whether you're at our Mill Creek campus, and we rejoice in those folks that were baptized this morning, or whether you're here at our Sugarloaf campus or you're listening by way of the Internet, we are thrilled to have you today, and I appreciate you coming so very, very much. Some of you may remember the name, probably don't, but uh, the name Dawn Smith Jordan. Dawn Smith Jordan was selected Miss South Carolina and in, was actually the first runner-up to Miss America in 1986. But an event took place the year before that caused an emotional and spiritual earthquake in her life that shook her to the very core of her being. On May the 31st, 1985, her 17-year-old sister, Sherry, was kidnapped while walking from her car to her mailbox. She was just two days from graduating from high school. They didn't hear anything for a few days. And after a few days, they got a letter in the mail, and it was from Sherry. And the letter was entitled, My Last Will and Testament. What had happened evidently was the person that kidnapped Sherry had informed her that he was going to kill her. But he allowed her to write this last letter to her family. Here's what it said. It said, I love you all so much. Please don't let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus and please don't worry about me. I'm going to be with my father now. Five days later, her body was discovered. She had been raped. She had been strangulated. But the nightmare was far from over. The killer continued to telephone the Smith family numerous times over almost a month. And he would describe to them how he had raped her. And how he had tortured her, and how he had strangled her, and how he had killed her. These phone calls went on intermittently for over a month. This man became the subject of the largest manhunt in South Carolina history. He was apprehended shortly thereafter and was sentenced to die in the electric chair. You may remember, or you may not, but the story actually became a television movie. It was entitled Nightmare in Columbia County, which was aired on CBS. Her daughter, Dawn, thought that finally her nightmare would be over and thought she could move on. Then a few years later, she gets a letter in the mail. And it was a letter that would forever change her life. It was the man that had raped and tortured and strangulated her sister. And in that letter, he asked her this question. Dawn, will you and your family ever forgive me? For what I have done. Now, I just want to ask all of us a question this morning. And it, and it really is a question for every one of us. And it's a tough question. And the question real simply is this. Would you? If you got a letter in the mail from that man who had strangulated and raped and brutalized your sister. And then tortured your family with the details over it over and over and over. And then showed absolutely no remorse, no regret at his trial. And then you get a letter in the mail out of the blue from him asking you to forgive him. Would you? Well, according to a Time Magazine article that was written several years ago, more than likely most people would not. The article was entitled, Should All Be Forgiven? It contained a survey in which people were asked whether or not 
they would forgive someone who did the following things. Let me just read them to you. Would you forgive someone who murdered someone in your community? 33% said yes. 59% said no. Would you forgive someone who raped you? 22% said yes. 73% said no. Would you forgive someone who raped a member of your family? 19% said yes. 77% said no. Would you forgive someone who murdered your child? 15% said yes. 81% said no. Now, very few of us have experienced the type of relational earthquake and the emotional earthquake and spiritual earthquake as Dawn has. I get that. But almost every one of us in this room have experienced some type of a relational earthquake. Maybe your marriage was mangled by adultery. Maybe you had a friendship that was fractured by disloyalty. <clears throat> Maybe you had a partnership that was poisoned by dishonesty. What we've been saying in this series is whenever these earthquakes uh, take place, somebody is always at fault because earthquakes are caused by faults. Now, sometimes it's my fault, not your fault. I'm the one that broke it. Sometimes it's your fault, not my fault. You're the one that broke it. But when you go to study God's Word and read what God has to say about how you repair these relationships, what you find is God's really not concerned about fixing the blame. What God is concerned with is fixing the problem. And what we've been discovering is, is that whenever a relationship is ruptured between fellow Christians, both parties have a responsibility to seek reconciliation. Now, in the first part of this series that we've been calling Fault, we dealt with a situation where it's your fault, not theirs. You're the offending party. You're the one that messed up. You're the one that broke it. What do you do? And in that case, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verse 23. He said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus said, if we broke it, we ought to take the initiative to fix it. Now, if it's their fault, not yours, what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15 applies. We read this a couple of weeks ago. He says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus said, look, even if you're not the one that broke, even if it's not your fault, you're not the offending party, you should still take the initiative to fix it. So what we've done over the last couple of weeks is we said, okay, what do you need to do? What steps do you need to take if you want to fix a relationship that you didn't even break to begin with? We said the first step you've got to take is the step of confrontation. Even though we didn't break it, we've got to take the first step of fixing it. And we said when somebody hurts your feeling, when somebody does you wrong, when somebody really has messed you over, you don't go to anybody else, you don't talk to it about anybody else, about it to anybody else. You go privately and personally to the person that offended you and you lovingly confront them with, and you do it not because you're trying to get revenge or you're trying to make them feel bad. You're going for the hope of restoration and reconciliation. You're trying to rebuild that relationship. Then we said after you take the step of confrontation last week, we said you have to take the step of 
elimination. And we talked about the fact that what you've got to do is you've got to treat what they've done to you as a debt, and you've got to cancel that debt. Just like God's canceled your sin debt for you, you've got to be willing to cancel their sin debt to you as well. Now, we're going to get this morning, as we kind of wrap all this up, into kind of what I call the nitty-gritty of forgiveness. Because we've kind of danced all around this, but we really haven't gotten to the core of this whole thing about forgiveness. Because you see, it's one thing for you to sit there and go, you know, I know that I need to forgive that person. And it's one thing to sit there and go, you know, I, I really want to forgive that person. But it's an entirely different matter to get to the point where you really do forgive that person and forgive that person in the right way. And you say, what is the right way? You haven't forgiven a person in the right way until they're truly forgiven. And they're not truly forgiven until you're really ready to move on. So the third and the final step to forgiving others is what I call reciprocation. There's confrontation. You go to that person. There's elimination. You cancel the debt. But then there's what I call reciprocation. I'm going to take. I'm going to going to unpack all of this for you this morning. Now, the key principle is found in a beautiful little book in the New Testament called Ephesians. So, if you brought a copy of God's Word this morning, a Bible, an iPad, a smartphone, whatever, I want you to turn to a little book. It's called Ephesians. They're, they're kind of a part of, of a corpus called the Pauline Epistles. There's Galatians, there's Ephesians, there's Philippians, there's Colossians. It's about eight or nine books in the New Testament. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And in two short verses, we're going to learn this great biblical principle about the motivation for forgiveness and the method of forgiveness. We're going to learn once and for all why we ought to be a forgiving people, why we ought to forgive others, and not just why we ought to do it, but how we ought to forgive others. Now, let me just stop and just tell you something that you probably have already picked up in this series. All these steps that I'm giving you are very simple steps, very easy to understand, but they're very difficult to apply. They're very gut-wrenching steps to take. You, for some of you, I'm going to be honest, you've been hurt so badly by people in your past. You've been messed over so badly by people in your past. You actually will do this almost kicking and screaming at first until you really begin to understand and apply the principle we're going to talk about this morning. Because this is what I want you to take out the door with you today. You ready? Here it is. I choose to forgive others. I choose to forgive others just as God has forgiven me. I choose to forgive others just as God has forgiven me. So I want to give you this morning these two steps you've got to take in order to practice this principle of reciprocation. So let's say you finally decided, okay, I'm not the one that broke it. They are. I'm not the one that messed me over. They're the ones that messed me over. They haven't taken any steps to make this right. I have taken steps to make it right. There's a step of confrontation. There's a step of elimination. So what do I need to do now to finally close this chapter in my life and move on, totally forgive them, and make sure that I can move on with my life? There's two things you have to do. All right, ready? And they're hard. Number one, you've got to eliminate bitterness. You have got to eliminate bitterness. Now, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, 
Here's why Paul said that. Paul knew something that I know and you know. You cannot bear the fruit of forgiveness until you cut out the root of bitterness. Let me say that again. You cannot bear the fruit of forgiveness until you cut out the root of bitterness. Now, another version translates this, translates this verse this way. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Now, let me just kind of state something you probably already figured out. That sounds a little bit weird. I mean, how would you respond if you came into my office and you sat down and you said, Pastor, I've got this real big problem. Can you help me with it? I said, sure. I've got the answer for everything. What's your problem? So you come to me and you say, I've got all this bitterness in my heart. I've got all this rage in my heart. I've got all of this unresolved anger in my heart. Pastor, what should I do about it? What if I just looked at you and said, get rid of it? Next you wouldn't be real happy about that, would you? You're, are you kidding me? That's all you've got to say? Get, just get rid of it. Let it be put away. And yet that's exactly what Paul says. He says, get rid of it. Now that raises a question. How do you do that? That The word, by the way, get rid of, literally means to remove. It literally means to separate yourself from something. I thought about this illustration. How many of you have ever, and I'm sure that's true of most of us, how many of you ever walked into a spider web? How many of you ever done that? You ever walked into a spider web? You ever done that? The first time you do that, you immediately know what the term anacrophobia means, right? You, nobody has to tell you what that means. I mean, and you know what you're doing? What's the first thing you immediately do? Somebody tell me when you walk into a spider web. You start pulling and you start scratching. You start, you know, you're doing everything you can and you do it with urgency. You're pulling it. Any, anything that's not a spider web's coming off. Right? And you don't stop till it's gone. You want it all out. That's the same idea in this word, get rid of all bitterness. And by the way, do you notice all these vices that Paul lists? It's like Paul sat down and said, I want to think of every single fault that can cause such a relational earthquake in your life that it would make forgiveness almost impossible. And so Paul says, if you're harboring any type of hurt in your heart, any type... I don't care what it is, bitterness, rage, malice, unresolved anger, lose it, drop it, get rid of it. Now, by the way, you notice he begins with bitterness. There's a reason for that. The word bitterness originally meant something that was sharp or pointed. And see, Paul knows how bitterness works in our life. Bitterness is kind of like an imaginary knife that we carry with us everywhere we go. And if we ever find that person that did us wrong, we want to stab them with it. Bitterness is like a spear that you carry with you everywhere you go. So in case you run into that person that messed you over, you can run them through with it. Bitterness is like a sword that you carry in your sheath. And if you ever run into that person that you're really upset about, you can just thrust him through that, with that sword and thrust him right through his heart. And see, there are some of you in this room, some of you at, at, our, at our Mill Creek campus, you're listening right now on the Internet. And let me tell you what I know is true about you. And you know it's true. You never leave home unarmed. Everywhere you go, you make sure before you walk out the door, you pick up that knife. You pick up that spear. And you pick up that sword. Because you just might meet up with that person one day. And when you do, you're going to let them have it. And Paul's advice is real simple. He says, if you've got any bitterness toward anybody, you've got any bitter feelings toward anybody, get rid of them. 
So if you were to walk into Paul's office today and you were to say, Paul, I'm still mad, I'm still bitter, I'm still angry, I'm still upset at this person or that person because of what they did to me, Paul would look at you and say, okay, stop it. Just stop it. You still find yourself every now and then kind of fantasizing about hanging that person over acid by their toenails. You ever do that? Paul says, quit that. Just stop that. Now, I know you may be sitting there and you may be saying, well, that's easy for Paul to say. Well, it really wasn't. Because when Paul wrote these words, he was sitting in a Roman jail cell, unjustly incarcerated, unfairly treated. As a matter of fact, he, really, he would never get out alive. He would lose his life. You know why he would lose his life? Just for preaching the gospel. Just for telling the truth. And yet here he is sitting in prison for something he didn't do, for doing nothing wrong. And he's saying, I am begging you, let all bitterness and rage and unresolved anger flush it from your heart. Get rid of it. Now, you may sit there and you may say, well, I got another problem. Paul's a lot more spiritual than I am. Hey, let me let, me let you in a little secret. Getting rid of bitterness is not just being spiritual. Getting rid of bitterness is actually being smart. You say, what do you mean by that? Bitterness is an acid that eats its own container. Bitterness is a cancer that destroys its own body. I love this definition. Somebody said bitterness is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. You know, that really is true. Oh, you think about this. Let's say you went to bed last night and you're, you were bitter. I, toward, you know, whoever or whatever, no matter what they've done. Let's say you went to bed last night and, and, and you, you thought these bad thoughts or you were bitter towards someone. Or, or let's say yesterday, you know, you were out maybe whatever you were doing and, and you just kind of got, you know, you thought about this person, this person came to your mind again and you just got bitter all over again. Have you ever thought about this? When you're bitter towards someone, that means you're thinking about the person that you're bitter toward, okay? Now, I hate to break the news to you, but let me just be honest with you. Whoever you're bitter toward and whoever you're thinking about, let me assure you of something. They're not thinking about you. And you, you, you know, you, you, does your bitterness ever keep you up at night? You say, yeah, it does. They're sleeping like a baby. Does your bitterness ever give you indigestion where you can't even eat? They're picking out. They don't care about you. The problem with bitterness is it grows and it controls and it consumes and it really doesn't get you anywhere. How many of you just out of curiosity are from the deep south? You, you didn't move here. You're from the deep south. Just to see how many southerners we got here. All right, all the rest of you who are not saved, you need to hear this. <laughs> here in the deep south, we have this plant. It's called kudzu. Now, let me tell you about kudzu. I am convinced that kudzu is the only part of this world God did not create. Kudzu was created by the devil. Matter of fact, I'm convinced of this. I believe the only plant that will grow in hell is kudzu because fire can't kill it. You, you cannot get rid of kudzu. It grows like wildfire. It takes over everything that it can. You, if you're from the deep south, you know what I'm talking about. You don't want kudzu in your yard. You don't want kudzu anywhere around you. I want you to hear me. Bitterness is an emotional kudzu. And it wraps its tentacles around your mind. And it wraps its tentacles around your heart. 
and it will take over your life completely, and it will completely suck the joy and the happiness and the peace and the contentment right out of your life. Now, that raises a question. When Paul says, okay, get rid of it, Paul says, leave it behind, Paul says, remove it, the question is, how do you do that? How do you pull it out of your heart? Let me give an illustration. I read this story the other day. I thought, well, that's a great way to, to put it. I was reading a true story the other day about a man that was in Burma, and he was with a guide, and, and he was a hiker, and he hired this guy to take him through the jungles of Burma. Well, he and his guide came to this very shallow, wide river, and, and they waded through it. Well, when they got to the other side, when they came out of the water, numerous leeches had attached themselves to this man's torso and his legs. Well, his first instinct was just to reach down and start pulling these leeches, you know, off of his body. Well, as he reached for that first leech, the, the, the guide grabbed his hand and stopped him and said, don't do that. Don't, do not tear those leeches out. He said, why not? He said, because when you do, you'll leave little tiny pieces of that leech under your skin and infection will set in and it could kill you. And so the man said to the guide, he said, well, well how do you get rid of them? Now, listen, this is, this is amazing. The guide said, here's what we'll do. Just hang on. So not going to kill you. He said, the best way to get rid of, of leeches is go bathe in a very warm balsam bath for just a few minutes. He said, well, what good does that do? He said, there's something about that warm balsam water that calms these leeches. And they will kind of relax and they'll release their hold on your body. And then you can just very gently pull them off of you and it won't leave any residue in your skin. And I read that story and I thought to myself, when somebody hurts you and these leeches of bitterness attach themselves to your heart and these leeches of bitterness attach themselves to your mind, you can't just rip them off and expect you'll be ready to forgive. You know why? Because you'll always leave pieces of resentment and pieces of bitterness and pieces of anger and they'll hide under the surface. The only way to get rid of bitterness, listen, the only way to get rid of bitterness is to bathe in the soothing, warm waters of God's grace and God's forgiveness. And it's amazing when you begin to bathe in God's grace and God's forgiveness, it's amazing how bitterness will just begin to relax and it will release its hold on you and you can just pull it out. Now, the question is, how do you do that? How do you get there? And why should you even try it? Well, the secret is found in two words. They're the two most important words in this passage in verse 32. Listen to this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Now, listen to these next two words. Just as. Would you say that out loud with me? Just as in Christ God forgave you. Those are the two most important words in this passage. Paul says to us, I'm not only asking you to forgive, I'm going to be bold enough, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. As a matter of fact, if you don't do it the way I tell you to do it, you really will never forgive the way you ought to forgive. And the way you ought to forgive is just as. That's the motivation for forgiveness. That is the model for forgiveness. That is the method of forgiveness. I choose to forgive others just as as God has forgiven me. All right, so step one, we eliminate bitterness. Step two, we demonstrate forgiveness. We demonstrate forgiveness. Now, notice the first thing Paul says in verse 32. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. 
Now, I'll tell you why I know Paul was a man of God, why I know this has to be the Word of God. Because even a psychologist will tell you what I'm saying is absolutely brilliant. Not what I'm saying, what Paul said. What, what we're reading here is brilliant. For every negative, there's a what? For every action, there's a what? Reaction, right? For every action, there's a reaction. Every negative, there is a positive. Now, look, it's amazing. Paul said that when you eliminate bitterness in your life, you will at the same time activate kindness in your life. When you get rid of bitterness, you'll get a hold of kindness. I'll, I'll get, I, here's a good illustration. Have you ever met a kind, bitter person? No, and you won't. There's no such thing as a kind, bitter person. You say, well, pastor, why is that? Listen to what else he says in verse 32. Then it looks at the next thing. He says, be kind and be tenderhearted. Why would he say that? Well, somebody tell me. You're, you're smart people, most of you. What do you think bitterness does to your heart? Somebody tell me. Hardens it. Bitterness hardens your heart. That's why Paul says, be tenderhearted. Bitterness hardens the heart. Kindness softens the heart. Kindness tenderizes the heart. Kindness softens the heart. And then Paul hits us with a punchline. Listen to verse 32. Forgiving each other, <clears throat> just as God, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, that is a profoundly simple statement, and it is a simply profound statement. Paul said, we repeated this from last week, the basic reason why you ought to be a forgiving person is because you are a forgiven person. Because only forgiven people are really motivated to forgive. So you forgive because you are forgiven, and you're forgiven because Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead so that you could be forgiven. Now get all that in your mind because this is this next step is really big for some of you in this room. Because when I put something on the screen, listen to me. I know there's some of you right now, your heart's hard toward me right now. Because I get it, I understand, I keep repeating this. I know I'm not sitting where some of you are sitting. I was never sexually abused, some of you were. I was never date raped, some of you were. I've never been messed over by a business partner, some of you were. I've never been left by my spouse to raise children alone. Some of you have been. I get all that. I'm not where you are. I understand. I really do. I understand that I am not where you are, okay? Everybody get that, okay? So just take your fist down, lower your guard a minute, and listen to this next statement. You will never be able to forgive someone else until you remember how God has forgiven you for what you have done to him. You will never be able to forgive someone else for what they have done to you until you remember how God has forgiven you for what you have done to him. You will never forgive anybody, ever, if you keep focusing on that person who hurt you. You'll only get to the point where you can finally say, you know, I can forgive you for hurting me because I finally started focusing on the fact that God forgave me even though I hurt him. As long as you focus on the person who's done something to you, you'll never forgive them. You will never be able to forgive someone else for what they have done to you until you begin to remember what God has, God has forgiven you for what you have done to him. That's the motivation of forgiveness. But what's the method? How are we supposed to forgive? How do you do that? 
Well, I love what Paul does. Paul says, okay, you're, willing to, you're really willing to go forgive this person, right? Yes, I am. Paul says, okay, I'm going to tell you how to do it. You may sit there and say, you don't have to tell me how to do it. Oh, yes, he does. Because if you don't forgive a person exactly, word for word, line for line, precept for precept, dotting every I and crossing every T, if you don't forgive someone exactly the same way God has forgiven you, you have not truly forgiven that person. So that raises the $64,000 question. How has God forgiven us? I want you to write down three things. We'll, we'll wrap this up. Number one, God forgives us freely. God forgives us freely. Jesus Christ didn't charge us anything when he came to die on the cross for us. He didn't charge us a dollar, didn't charge us a dime. He didn't charge us anything. He didn't say, well, first I want my pound of flesh. He didn't take any revenge before he said, okay, now I'll forgive you. He didn't come and say, pay me what you owe me, then I'll forgive you. He didn't say, no, first you clean up your life and get your act together, and then I'll die for you. He died for us free of charge, and he died for us so that we could be forgiven freely. And what Paul is saying is the way we forgive others is exactly to be the way God has forgiven us freely. That means no strings attached, no fine print at the bottom of the contract, no conditions. You forgive freely. Number two, God forgives us fully. God forgives us fully. Forgiveness is not fractional. Listen, I want, think about this. What if God this morning, what if you got up and what if God had said this to every one of us in this room? What if God had said to us, you know, I've kind of changed my mind. I'm going to forgive 99.99% of all your sin. But there's one part of one fraction of one decimal point of one sin I'm just not going to forgive you for. Where do you think we'd be? Doomed, sunk, out of luck, up the creek, no paddle. No chance for eternal life. God does not forgive in fractions. He not only forgives all of our sins, plural, he forgives all of our sin, singular. According to every statistic that I have read, and I think you probably read the same thing, one out of every two of us in this room or at our Mill Creek campus listening, by the way, at the Internet, one of every two people hearing me right now will be, will be diagnosed with cancer. One out of two of us are going to be diagnosed with cancer. Now, you go to the doctor. He sits you down. He says, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got to break the news. You've got a tumor in your body. You have a cancerous tumor in your body. Now, if you ever have that experience, you will not say to the doctor, well, what put it there? You won't say to the doctor, who's to blame for me having this? You, you, you won't say to the doctor, well, it's not fair that I have this tumor. You, you won't say to the doctor, hey, can I live with this tumor? Somebody tell me, what are you going to say to that doctor? Yeah, can we get this thing out? Can you, can you please get this thing out of me? All right, now watch this. 
Now, suppose that this doctor looks at you and he says, well, yeah, I can get the tumor out. I, I, I can remove the cancer from your body, but you need to understand this. It will cost you everything you have. Your, your insurance won't totally cover this. In other words, it'll cost you your 401k. It will cost you all of your savings. It will cost you your house. It will cost you all of your furnishings. You'll have to sell your cars. It will cost you everything that you have. So you go home and think about whether or not you really want me to take this tumor out. Now, if you don't want to take it out, you're going to die, but you just have to tell me what you want to do. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you really think you'd go back to that doctor and you'd say, um, what would you charge for half a tumor? No, you wouldn't do that. You know exactly what you'd do. You don't care what it costs. You tell the doctor that. I don't care what it costs. I want this out. Listen, God expects the same thing out of us. When we forgive, he says, when you forgive someone, I want all of that sin forgiven. I want all of that bitterness forgiven. I want all of that bitterness taken away. When we forgive someone, we forgive them fully. We don't hold anything back. We don't hold one dime back out of the account that we canceled. It's all gone. We forgive freely. We, give, we forgive fully. And then here's the last thing. God forgives us finally. Finally. In other words, when God forgives us, he says, okay, debt's clean. Slate's clean. God doesn't keep a record of past wrongs. God doesn't have a suitcase full of grudges he carries around. When God cancels the debt, God burns the note, and that's exactly what God expects of you and me. When you forgive someone, you say, first of all, I'm for doing this free of charge. I'm not asking anything out of you. I'm forgiving you. I'm forgiving you freely. I'm forgiving you fully. There's not one part, there's not one iota of what you did to me that I'm ever going to carry with me again. And then finally, I'm forgiving you finally. This is never going to come up between us Again, you can't be like the little brothers, Timmy and Johnny. They were upstairs, and they were playing. And just before bedtime, Timmy hits Johnny with a stick. Well, this terrific fight breaks out. Mom hears it. She rushes up there to see what's going on. As she finds out what happens, she pulls Johnny aside. She says, now, Johnny, Timmy hits you with a stick, right? Yes, ma'am. He started the fight, didn't he? Yes, ma'am. She's okay now, Johnny. Before you go to bed. You've got to forgive Timmy for what he did because after all, you might die tonight. Johnny thought about it for a moment. He said, Mom, I'll forgive Timmy tonight, but if I don't die tonight, he better watch out in the morning. <laughs> and you know what? That's the attitude some of you have. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take to heart what you said, and I'll, I'll walk out of here, and I'll forgive them right now. But I'm not guaranteeing they'll stay forgiven tomorrow. No, that's not forgiveness. When you forgive, you do it freely, you do it finally, fully, and you do it finally. Now, I didn't end the story of Dawn Smith Jordan that I told you at the beginning. So what did Dawn Smith Jordan do about the man who murdered and raped and strangulated and brutalized and tortured her sister and her family? Dawn Smith Jordan said when she got that letter, she was so angry she couldn't see straight. She said she was frustrated. She was irritated. 
And she said what many of us would say if we were honest. She said, there wasn't one cell in my body that wanted to forgive the man that killed my sister. But she did. And the reason why she forgave him was because this verse came to her heart. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And before that man was electrocuted, she corresponded with him. And she let him know, from the bottom of my heart, I do forgive you. It is my prayer that you would come to know the Jesus that my sister knew and that I know. And it would be my prayer that when you die, the first person you'll see after Jesus will be my sister who's in heaven. See, this is the way life is, folks. It's just the way it is. We all have faults. Those faults are going to cause tremors. Those tremors are going to cause relational earthquakes. Sometimes it'll be my fault, not yours. Sometimes it'll be your fault, not mine. Sometimes I'll be the one that broke it. Sometimes you'll be the one that broke it. But either way, you can shock-proof your life today if you'll just forgive others the way God has forgiven you. Let's pray together.